0: Genesis chapter three, verses 14 through 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word with gratitude. We come to your word with thanksgiving, Lord, that you have provided it, provided instruction. Lord, but we come to you today for life. God, the life that was taken from this world, the life and the promise of a future that was taken from humanity, from your people, Lord, we ask that you would breathe that life into us today. God, that you would restore us to life, that you would overturn in us the curse of death and that you would give us freedom and celebration and joy today. God, teach us by your spirit, teach us in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Andre Agassi is one of the greatest American tennis players of all time. He wrote a very popular autobiography several years ago entitled Open, where he talks about his experience of winning and losing. And he says something interesting. He says, winning doesn't feel as good as losing feels bad. Can you relate to that? Winning doesn't feel as good as losing feels bad. Why does sorrow seem to carry so much more weight than joy? I remember the day uh, I got engaged. My wife and I got engaged January 20th, 2007. Uh, it was an amazing day. We celebrated by having dinner at the restaurant where we had spent our first date, which was Pascucci's on State Street. I believe it's still there. Uh, we went to the harbor. We took a walk on the breakwater and I proposed at the end of the breakwater in the Santa Barbara Harbor. And we came home and we celebrated with family. And the next morning we're at my parents' house and I'm sharing the good news with them and we're celebrating together. And the phone rang and it was my brother. And so I'm excited. I'm going to tell my older brother that I'm engaged and we're going to celebrate together. But he had news of his own. His dog, Chopper, had been hit by a car that morning. And they didn't know if Chopper was going to make it. And in that moment, I knew that my celebration was going to have to take a back seat to his sorrow. And I knew that I was not okay with that. Selfishness. Anger, resentment built up in me in that moment. No, how dare your sorrow interfere with my joy? But so often that is the way things work. No matter how beautiful and how pleasing something is, all it takes is just a little bit of sorrow for the whole thing to come undone. And and it doesn't feel like it works the other way. When you're grieving, unless your grief, the reason for your grief is overturned, joy doesn't have that same effect on sorrow. Why does sorrow feel like it carries so much more weight than joy? So the book of Genesis records the tragic reality that though this world began in glory, it has been subjected to anguish. And while beauty and joy are still a part of this world that we live within, sewn into the fabric of our existence with beauty and joy and pleasure is sorrow and pain and anguish. Imagine going to see the greatest orchestra ever perform the most beautiful symphony ever composed. And yet there is one instrument out of tune or playing in a different key. It doesn't matter how beautiful and how perfect everyone else is playing. It is anguish on the ears. It's uncomfortable. It's a problem. It should not be there. And this dissonance that taints our experience in this beautiful world, Genesis says, is the reality of death. The reality of death creates a dissonance in all of the joy, in all of the beautiful things that we can experience. The very fact that you will die brings our high notes just a little lower and our low notes all the deeper. See, God has made humans to live in paradise with him forever, but the first humans sinned, and so they're sentenced to die. Some people will look at this text and they'll say, God said that they would die, but they don't actually die right away. I beg to differ. They are cut off from God, who is the source of life. They are cut off from the tree of life, which is the antidote for death. And so they are effectively sentenced to death immediately. It's like a patient being removed from life support. They may not die in that moment, but death is certain. So the moment they are cut off from God and cut off from the tree of life, it's only a matter of time. And the inevitability of death creates a tension that we all experience in life. You were made to live for eternity. And yet you are destined to die. And that creates a tension that we experience in all aspects of life. You see, death casts a shadow upon all of life. Now, look, I know none of you woke up this morning and were like, it's Sunday. I'm so excited. I'm going to church so we can talk about how I'm gonna die. Nobody did that. Okay, I am well aware that I am laying the bad news on thick. We don't like talking about this. We all think about it. We're all aware of it. But we don't like talking about it. But listen to me, okay? Because if your faith cannot stand up in the face of death, it is a powerless faith. And if your Savior cannot stand up in the face of death, it is no Savior. So we need to press into the discomfort of death, the discomfort of anguish and futility, because on the other side, we will find a savior that conquers death. And so we press into the discomfort so that we can experience the glory of the salvation on the other side. And so remember Genesis 1 and 2, we learned that the humans were made in the image of God. And that in the daily functions of ordinary life, they reminded the world what God was like. Remember, God gave them a job. He said, rule and subdue the earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply by working and keeping the ground. And so as they built families, as they were fruitful and multiplied, just the, the ordinary life of building families, They reminded the world of what God was like as they, as they did the work and they cultivated creation and they cared for the animals and they cared for the garden and they expanded Eden. They reminded the world what God was like. But now in Genesis three, it is those very same contexts building families and working the ground that are filled with pain and are ultimately a reminder that as human beings, they are going to die. Those contexts that were supposed to be a blessing to the world are now the contexts where we experience fear and sorrow and anguish. So because of the threat of death, building families becomes more painful. God says that I will multiply your pain in childbearing. He says to the woman, now what in the world does this mean? Okay, this isn't just referring to the physical pain of labor and delivery. It's referring to all of the pain, the emotional pain, all of the anguish experienced in building families. First, because humans die, the need to produce children is greater than it was before in order to just increase the population. It's simple math, right? Now that people go away from the world, we need to have babies faster in order to maintain a population. In that sense, pain is multiplied. But also in terms of emotional pain, because of death, anxiety in childbearing and in childrearing is multiplied. Many people have anxiety over whether or not they'll be able to conceive a child because death is a thing. Because sometimes things die. Some people are not able to get pregnant. And so there's anxiety related to that. When pregnancy does occur, there's anxiety over the health of the mother and the health of the baby. I remember when my my middle son was having an ultrasound, they found these spots on his liver and they told us that he could have massive developmental issues. And we were devastated the anxiety and the fear of the possibility of having a child that wasn't well was, was tortuous. Now, by God's grace, there is nothing wrong with Judah. He is perfectly fine and praise God for that. But there was anxiety and there still is anxiety in this world over a child that may be unwell. Then there's the anxiety related to labor and delivery and and the the pain of that, the discomfort of pregnancy. Then it doesn't stop once the baby's born. Now there's pain and just, am I going to be able to take care of this kid? When I brought my oldest son home, I wept because I'm like, I, I, if I don't do something right, you're dead. I like, do you know how far away it's? They're so fragile. So there's anxiety protecting. So because death is a thing, pain has been multiplied in building families. Pain has been multiplied in childbearing. Now, uh, this—if you—if you don't—if you don't. If you don't Believe me, check this out. This this word, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. That word childbearing is not related in the original language to labor and delivery. Okay? It's related to conception. That doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. Pain and conception? Uh, Genesis, I think you got it. I think you got it, you got it backwards. Then God says, in pain, you'll bring forth children. That is more associated with labor and delivery and also child rearing. So it is the entire process of becoming pregnant, giving birth, caring for children, sending them off into the world as well-adjusted human beings to make a contribution to society. It is all filled with anxiety. And all the parents in the room said, amen. Amen. So because of the threat of death, building families becomes more painful. Also because of the threat of death, working to provide for a vulnerable family becomes more painful. Not only does the ground not produce its abundance now that the sin has entered the world, but Adam needs to work in order to keep his family from starving. So Adam's got to work the ground that doesn't produce food in order to produce food so that he can feed his family. So he he sweats and bleeds and, and dies to provide for his family also that they have food because if they don't have food, they die. So the reason you have anxiety over work is because if you don't work, you don't make money. If you don't make money, you don't buy food. If you don't buy food, your family doesn't eat. If your family doesn't eat, they die. So because death is a thing, there is more pain in providing for a vulnerable family. We worry about keeping our jobs. We worry about whether or not our cost of living increase is going to be remotely comparable to the inflation rate in the world. And so we stress because death is in the world we work ourselves sick to get the promotion so we can provide for our families. And none of this would be an issue if death were eliminated from the equation. See, Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca said that human beings ebb and flow in wretchedness between the fear of death and the hardships of life. But see, where Seneca is wrong is it's that it's the fear of death that makes the hardships of life so scary. It's because death is a thing. Building families is more painful because death is a thing. Providing for a vulnerable family is more difficult. And because of the vulnerability caused by pregnancy and raising children, the marriage relationship is also more painful. So God tells the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this is a very confusing passage and it's been translated a variety of different ways in English Bibles. Sometimes in ways that sound like contradictions of one another. Like one says, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Another one says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, uh, but he shall rule over you. Another one says that your desire shall be, uh, you shall desire your husband. And so it's like, wait, do you like him or not like him? Are you for him? Are you against him? Either way, he is in a position of dominance and oppression. So what does this mean? Well, this word desire is a very rare word in the Old Testament. It only shows up three places, twice outside of this passage. In Song of Songs, it refers to a man's natural desire for sexual intimacy. In Genesis chapter 4, in the story of Cain and Abel, it refers to sin's natural desire to corrupt humanity. And so if this word is going to make sense of the context that it's used in scripture and make sense of the context in this passage, perhaps it's referring to a woman's natural desire to build a family. Um and there are there are many theologians out there that agree that this this is probably the best way to understand this that it's a desire and a natural desire to build a family. It's not saying that every woman today has the desire to build a family, but those that do will experience in their desire a need for a man. The need for a husband. See, because a child can't happen apart from a man and a woman. It doesn't work. It cannot happen. And so her natural desire to build a family puts her in need for her husband to provide a child and so in addition to this, the woman's vulnerability associated with being pregnant and raising children puts her in a position to depend to a greater degree upon her husband for provision and protection. And so because of sin, her husband is able to take her position of need and vulnerability and crush her. So anytime time we have need and we go to someone that has the ability to provide for that need, it puts us in a vulnerable place. If you need money, you can go to someone that has the money and there are reasons that contracts exist. Otherwise, the, the, the creditor would be able to oppress the debtor. Because you need what I have. There's a great example of this in uh, the very famous scene in The Godfather where Bonacera comes to Don Corleone on the day of his daughter's wedding to ask for a favor. He asks for justice. And Don Corleone says, someday, I'm not going to do my my Godfather impression. Sorry, I was working on it this morning and it just wasn't going to work. Someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, consider this a gift on the day of my daughter's wedding. Yeah, I'll give you the gift, but there's going to come a day when you will not be able to refuse me. When we are in need, it puts us in a place of vulnerability that is easily exploited by those who have power over us. Now, this situation between the man and the woman, it is not an affirmation or an approval of husbands controlling their wives. It is acknowledging that because of the threat of death, those who are more vulnerable will always be at risk of being dominated by those in power over them. So because of the threat of death, the ordinary things of life, like building families and providing food and the, the, or, the, the, the beautiful blessings of marriage and partnership are now have sorrow and anguish and oppression and violence and all kinds of opportunities for evil woven into the very fabric of this world that we experience And so, because we live under this shadow of death, the world is full of pain. And because we live under the shadow of death, death creates a need in us for security. We are constantly searching for security. Because death is in the world and can come at any moment. Anguish, anxiety, and pain can impact everything that we do. And so we no longer exist in this secure world of God's presence in the garden. And so the harsh reality of death looms over everything. And so we will do everything we can to create a sense of security, even if it means avoiding dealing with it altogether. So we see this in our world today too. We hide death. Our culture is so uncomfortable with death that we hide it. We don't talk about it. We were talking about this in, uh, among some of us the other day. Um, they, someone had mentioned the cemetery in Carpinteria. And I remember, I remember seeing the cemetery and I was like, wait, remind me where that is again. And they explained where it is. And I was like, oh Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. We 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 hide death. People aren't buried on their properties anymore. You've got to go to this one place where you kind of have to go out of your way to get there if you want to think about death. Death doesn't happen in the home anymore. It happens in hospitals. It happens in nursing homes. Even if someone has the, the privilege of being put on hospice so they can have the dignity of dying at home, even when it happens, they, the, the the morticians come right away and and get it out of the house. Look, I'm almost 40 years old and I have not lived a charmed life by any means. I have lost some of my best friends. I have lost my father. I have lost all kinds of people in my life. And until I went to Minnesota in November for my wife's grandmother's open casket funeral, I'd never seen a dead body. Many people I love have died, never seen one until November. Because we hide it. We put it in places so we don't have to think about it. We don't have to talk about it. We get it away from us. And if we, can't, if we can't hide death, we hide ourselves from death. See, the best we can do is reduce vulnerability. We're given to fitness, right? If I'm just healthy enough, I'm never going to die. If I take these supplements, not those supplements, those supplements will kill you, but these supplements, they will keep you alive forever. Okay, there's magic in these supplements. Beef liver. Some of you are like, hey, I take beef liver. We do everything we can through fitness, through diet, through medicine and supplements, uh, anti-aging. Do you know how big the anti-aging business is in the United States? It's like billions of dollars. All so that we can pretend we don't look like we're dying. We hide death, we hide from death, we distract from death, we self-medicate so we don't have to think about the pain in life, the fears in, in life. We add pleasure and comfort to our lives to distract us. Just only look at the beautiful things, only look at the pretty things, only go to vacations here, only eat at these restaurants, only do this. If I can just comfort myself and and add enough luxury to my life, then I won't have to think about death. But the moment tragedy strikes, you realize how frail our efforts really are at keeping death away. Global pandemics, natural disasters in other parts of the world remind us that no matter how healthy you are, tomorrow is not promised to anybody. Look, church, when we get here on Sundays, we're not talking philosophy Okay, we're not talking theory. These are not ideas that someday we might experience. You all know this. Some of you are more aware of it today than you have been in a long time because you've experienced tragedy. Some of you encountering tragedy recently, just feels like one after another this isn't theory i know we don't like talking about it but you can't hide from death it's coming all of these little distractions All of these little things to take our minds off of it. It's band-aids. Cover it up. But it doesn't heal. So God shows us what we need to protect us from the harsh reality and and the fear of death. We, we We need God's protection. There's a beautiful part at the end of this passage where God makes clothes from animal skins. And he covers Adam and Eve before sending them out into the harsh reality of the world. Look, it's cold out there. Cover yourself. Many of us feel exposed and vulnerable right now, but God offers you protection. See, the reason none of these distraction techniques actually work at delivering us from the pain in life or the fear of death because it's it's treating like it's treating death like it's the problem death death actually isn't the problem pain and and suffering aren't actually The problem, they are only consequences of the real problems. Sin is the root cause of all death. And so the solution for death, if there is a solution for death, it must first deal with the problem of sin. Sin is the reason that we're in this mess. Sin is the reason that Adam and Eve died. Sin is the reason that we will die. If there's any real reason, any real solution for anything that we've talked about, it must first deal with the problem of sin. And so Genesis gives us the solution. In this text, there is the solution. Genesis 3.15 has been called the first gospel. It is the first time that God communicates the good news to human beings who are perishing. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of humanity has experienced the heel strikes of the enemy. We're walking around on bruised heels. Every time we succumb to temptation, every time we experience sin, it's just a victory for the enemy. Walking around on bruised heels. And though all of humanity experiences these heel strikes of the enemy, there is going to come a savior, this text says, who will once and for all deliver the fatal blow to the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible tells the story of waiting for this hero. It says, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so the rest of the Bible is anticipating this hero. Who is the seed of the woman? Next week, as we study the Cain and Abel story, we'll see that Eve celebrates when she becomes pregnant and and gives birth to a son. She says, I've gotten a man by the help of the Lord. And we're supposed to read this and go, that's the seed of the woman. That's the offspring of the woman. He is going to crush the head of the the serpent. That's what God said. And then we find out, no, Cain's not the hero. He actually crushes his brother Abel's head and kills his brother. This is gone horribly wrong. And then she gives birth to another son. His name is Seth. Maybe Seth is the snake crusher. Nope. Seth dies, succumbs to the heel strikes of the serpent. Maybe it's Noah. Maybe Noah is the one who is going to rescue us from the serpent. And Noah is rescued. Everyone else dies in the flood, but Noah doesn't. But then no sooner does the ark strike land that he gets drunk and sins and you realize it's not Noah. Noah is not the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe it's Abraham. Oh, finally, Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abe is the guy. Abraham is going to be the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Nope, it's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. Is it one of Jacob's sons? Joseph certainly seems like a fantastic character to to be the one to crush the head of the serpent. No, it's not Joseph. Joseph dies. It's actually not even through Joseph's line. It's through Judah, who was a terrible human being. Judah is the one who, through him, the snake crusher will come. Is it Moses? Not Moses. Moses doesn't even get to see the promised land. Is it King David? He's from the tribe of Judah. David was awesome. Know where David is? Dead. It's not David. But before he died, he said, your son, David, will sit on the throne forever. So David has a son, Solomon. Solomon's the guy. He's like building the kingdom and amassing wealth. The Israel looks like the garden of Eden. He is the guy. And then he's not. He forsakes God and follows after foreign women and commits idolatry and all these things. And Solomon dies. The entire story of the Old Testament is waiting for the snake crusher, waiting for the seed of the woman to, crumb, to come and crush the head of the serpent. That's what the whole Bible is about. But no one is able to overcome sin. And because they can't overcome sin, they can't overcome death. They're all Dead. And then Jesus comes. Jesus has conquered sin and death. In case you weren't aware of where we were going with this. Jesus has conquered sin and death where everyone else has succumbed to the heel strikes of the enemy. Jesus delivers blow after blow by refusing to cave to the serpent's temptations and tricks. And not only does he live a righteous and faithful life, but he actually comes and heals the sick so that they don't die. He casts out demons who are trying to bring spiritual death. He keeps striking at the enemy's head. He even raises the dead. He lays his hands on them and and, and brings them back to life. Jesus, because he has no sin, death has no power over him. And so he tells Lazarus, come out. Death can't keep him because Jesus said so. And so Jesus is the one with power over death. Death. He was the only one that didn't deserve to die because he's the only one that didn't sin. And yet on the cross, he acts as a substitute. See, we are the debtor and he is the creditor. He has all of the life, all of the wealth, all of the righteousness, all of the abundance. We have nothing and we need it. And unlike the man, he does not oppress those who are in need. He switches places with us. And so for the death that we deserve because of sin, Jesus nailed it to the cross, took our death so that we could have his life. The death that we deserve for sin has been taken for us by Jesus. His life was a ransom for your own. But because of his righteousness, death had no right to hold him. Death couldn't hold him because he had no sin. And so three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, leaving your sin and your death in the grave. But he is victorious over it. He is the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent and forever lives victoriously over sin and death. And the good news for us is that now anyone who trusts in Jesus is united to Jesus. And anyone who trusts in Jesus as the Savior from our sin and Lord over life will also walk in the victory that he walks in. A victory that is over sin, a victory that is over Satan, a victory that is over death. Jesus has conquered it all. And we, his people, simply through faith that he is our king, are united to him, become a part of his family, invited into his kingdom, and his kingdom is victorious over death. And so his people are victorious over death. See, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so through faith in Jesus, eternal life belongs to you. And because of Jesus, if you believe in him, eternal life belongs to you now, not later. Also later, but now. See, eternal life is not something that we are waiting for. Eternal life is something that we receive the moment that we believe. And so if you have trusted in Jesus, then you have eternal life today. And if you trust in Jesus today, then you will have eternal life today. And because of the eternal life that we have in Christ, because there is an eternity of good things awaiting those who follow Jesus, you can live free from the fear of death. Today, today you can live free from the fear of death. You don't need to find security in other things that can't save you. You have all of the security you need in life and in death because of Jesus. And so we need not fear. And so we can live with reckless abandon to the glory of Jesus. See, the greatest evidence that you live in freedom from fear of death is your willingness to lay down your life in the service of others. Think of it. If because I am afraid to die, I need to amass security, security, For myself, wealth for myself, so I can provide for myself. If if I am if I am aware of the fact that I am going to die, then my time is limited, and who I give my time to is significant. And so I have to protect my time because it's my time, and and I might not have enough time. And I have to protect my money because it's my money, and I might not have enough money because if I don't have enough money, then I don't eat, and if I don't eat, then I die. And, and I have to protect all of my comfort and all of my things because it's mine, because it's limited, because it goes away when I die. But if life is eternal, then you got all the time in the world. What are you protecting? If, if eternal life is, is a life at the right hand of the Father in whose right hand is pleasures forevermore, then, then what, do you, what do you have to hang on to? And so the real evidence that we are living free from the fear of death is actually generous self-sacrificial living. Jesus didn't fear death. That's why he died for you. If he put his fear of death over his love for you, guess what? You'd be dead in your sins, but you're not because he feared not death. And so if we, are truly set free from the fear of death, we can then lay down our lives in self-sacrificial service of one another. It was this belief. It was this belief in eternal life in Christ Jesus that caused the church to do absolutely crazy things in the first century, like preach the gospel because it could get you killed. But there's life beyond the grave. So what do you have to fear? Preach the gospel. Tell people about the good news of Jesus. What are they going to do? Make fun of you? Your father in heaven rejoices over you. Why fear rejection? Why fear death? Why why fear anything when your future in Christ is secure? It was this unabashed trust in the the resurrection from the dead and eternal life that caused the church to do crazy things like take care of the sick during the bubonic plague. They weren't afraid to die. Someone had to do it. Someone had to bury the dead. The Christians did it because they could lay down their lives. They, They didn't fear death. They could have courage. It was this this belief in, in the resurrection and eternal life that caused not all Christians, but some Christians to risk their lives to protect the Jews in Nazi Germany. Because they didn't fear death. They could sacrifice their lives for the sake of the other person. Church, I'm afraid we've lost this not lost the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. We have lost the fearlessness in the face of death. And the reason that scares me is because it means we might not understand the life that Jesus has purchased for us. Read an article from the gospel coalition this morning that said that, that life in Christ might be, Christianity's best kept secret. We're not even aware of it. But Jesus has given us life eternally, which gives us freedom from death, which means we can die and not be afraid, which means we can live to the glory of God and the good of others without holding back what belongs to us. My fear is that many of us come to church feeling like our life is running a little low, like it's a gas tank, and, and we, need, we need to be topped off before we run out. I've only got so much gas. I've only got so much life. I'm feeling like I'm running a little bit low, so I just need a little, little juice. But that's not the way we need to be living at all. This comes from a belief that life is limited. And so our strength is limited and energy is limited and and time is limited. But I want us to rethink this. In Jesus, there's no longer any limit on life. And so we don't come to church afraid that we are running dry. We come to church knowing that next week we are going to pour ourselves out. And woe is me if I don't have the life of Christ. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are going to be opportunities this week for you to empty yourself. And the reason you can is because you know you are filled to overflowing by the grace of Jesus Christ. So may we come into the house of God, seeking life, receiving life, because we are going to be poured out. Thanks be to God. And as we pour ourselves out in service for one another, we actually show people how beautiful and wonderful life in Christ is because it's better than life in this world. Apart from the assurance of life after death, you will never live the way that Jesus calls you to live. You will never pick up your cross and follow him. But if you are convinced of the life and glory that awaits on the other side of the grave, then you can lay your life down today because your time, your resources, and your life is unlimited. There's a saying in the world that tomorrow is not promised to any of us, so live for today. And this creates hedonists. It creates people self-serving, seeking pleasure because my time is limited, so I need to get what I can out of my time now but eternity is promised to those who trust in Jesus. This creates a life of heroism. This creates a life that can be sacrificed. This creates a life that is laid down for others. So Reality carpenteria, stop worrying about your life. Look, I need to hear this just as much as any of us. This week, I've been reminded just how much I fear not living. Not just aware that someday I'm going to die. But so afraid that, why, that it's the fear of death that actually keeps me from doing the things today that are good for me to do. Tomorrow is not promised to anyone in this world, but to those who trust in Jesus and eternity is promised. And when we live this way, abandoned to Jesus' mission, listen to what Paul says to the church in Rome. I want to close with this. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's not talking to Jesus. He's talking to you. He's talking to the church. The God of peace will one day crush Satan under your feet. Church, who's the snake crusher? Jesus and his body. The body of Christ, Jesus has dealt the death blow. The serpent is defeated. And when we live for the glory of Jesus, when we live lives of As cross-carrying believers, not fearing death, but pouring ourselves out in worship of God and service of one another, we trample the snake. When we celebrate communion, as we will in just a moment, the reminder of the broken body and shed blood for Jesus so that you can have life. And every time we remember that, we trample the snake. When we lift our voices in worship and declare the victory over sin and death, the serpent is beneath our feet. We've talked about this before. It is not that this world belongs to God, but Satan has invaded it. No. Adam and Eve handed the keys to the world to Satan when they disobeyed God and, and, and sinned. And Jesus is the one who has invaded. He is the one who has trampled his enemy. He is the one who has set us free. He is the one that has invited us back into the life that we never deserved. And so he is the one that we worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have done this for your glory. And God, I pray right now for us in this space. That Holy Spirit, you would come and breathe life into your people. Holy Spirit, come fall on this place and revive the deadness in us. Bring us back to life. forgive us of our sin. Give us the power over death and over the fear of death that we're desperate for. God, breathe your life into this place and may we experience a revival in our hearts and in our minds and in our community. In Carpinteria, the coastlands and the nations, God, wake us up We're hiding in the darkness because we're afraid of death. We're hiding in the darkness because we're afraid of of what this means for us. But Lord, you can give courage. You can give confidence. You can give freedom. You can give a joy that is not quenched by sorrow. You can give life that is not defeated by death. God, bring that into my heart today. Bring that into this place today. For those who are sorrowful, God, give them joy today. For those who have lost, Father, would you give them the reminder that there is victory in Christ today. For those who are struggling with sin and temptation, would you remind them that there is power today, Power in the name of Jesus. Life in the name of Jesus. God, bring life to our mortal bodies. Paul said, who can save me from this body of death? We all cry out together. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Breathe life into us today. In Jesus' name, amen.